0: Billy ran around with a railroad crew and he hit him in the knee. Took him up the foot to the 5 foot 3. He hit him right square in the door, Ray, me that haven't any he family. Hey, Billy, somewhere like are you now? Don't you know? Billy Bones resting now. What? I'm right with the geeks Force. I forcing. He loved a bloody good fight, of course. Run away in a big keggy van to the banks of the Little Joe. Andrew a machine gun. Had the Israelis in his sights with a crime like Shiites. Hey, Billy, sun, where all rare old time, laughing and singing on the Lebanon line. Came in a camp not looking too pretty, never even got to see the holy city. Now Billy's out there in the desert sun. And his mother cries when the morning and there's mothers crying all over this world. For the poor little darling boys and girls, here in the sun, where are you now? Don't you know the Virginia now with a Where are Billy Bones resting now? God damn it, why is it doing this?
1: I unhosted you! Why do I unhost and then it hosts again? Motherfucker! Jesus! Every single time I go to unhost, it says unhosted, and then the motherfucker rehosts. Stop calling me a boomer. So that song, Billy's Bones, is a very interesting one, that Pogue song that I was singing. It's inspired by actual events, which was in the 1980s after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. There are, was a UN peacekeeping force that was deployed uh, to basically keep the Israelis away from the Palestinians uh, in the wake of Sabra and Shatila, I believe. And part of that UN deployment was Irish troops. And uh, I believe this is in this is covered extensively in "Pity the Nation" by Robert Fisk, uh, a Irish U- UN lad, UN troop was uh, kidnapped and murdered by, most likely, uh, the Lebanese forces Christian militia, the one that Peter Dow was a member of, uh, in collusion with the Israelis. Uh, And it became a big scandal. Like, oh my God, did Israel kill an Irish soldier? Uh, And I remember reading a, like, liner notes or something for that album Runs out of me in the lash that described that song as surreal. And it's like, no, it isn't. It's literally a song about an Irish guy going to the uh, going to the UN and getting killed by the Israelis. And I think it's because nobody knew that story outside of Ireland. I know I never did before I read about it. But it is funny because Ireland's non insurgent based military uh, uh, roll call of like the 20th century stuff that was not, you know, the IRA or the Civil War. Uh, or uh, being uh, being neutral during World War II. My dad used to say the only two neutral countries in World War II were the friendly Swedes and the cowardly Irish. The only big military events of any kind were part of, mil- of UN operations. Uh, there was a famous event during the... Uh, Congo Civil War that saw the death of Patrice Lumumba and uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, where European mercenaries, I believe, uh, uh, allied with the Belgian-backed breakaway Katanga uh, province, ruled by Mois Tsombe, attacked a Irish-held UN base in Jadaville. There's a kind of boring Netflix movie about it. And that's really it. The Irish Army didn't do much. Although they got their asses shot to hell during World War I as part of the British Expeditionary Force. Uh, I really wish I had that mixtape of me rapping. It's, I still remember some of the things. I, like, I, I remember those, those lyrics. But it was mostly just me sh- pretending to shoot drug dealers. Like, hey, can I buy some drugs? Sure. Uh, undercover cop, you're under arrest. Don't do drugs. That was it. And I never... The weird thing is is that I never really had any idea what I was going to do with it. I wasn't imagining I was going to... I never played it for anybody. I didn't go to school. I wasn't that much of a dork to go to school and like, hey guys. Uh, So I don't know what the hell I thought he was even going to do with it. I guess I just had this like creative urge that needed to be expressed. And at that moment, hating drugs... Was the most uh, emotionally, uh, like the most powerful symbolic, like narrative that I could get my m- mind around at the time. I did get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, so fuck. I, I and the funny thing is, is that I've had zero side effects at all. Like I didn't get anything after having it. I didn't even get a little like achy, nauseous, anything. It didn't even really hit my hurt, hurt my arm that much, which makes me wonder if I even got anything. Maybe it was just, uh, maybe it was just sugar water. Honestly, though, I wouldn't be surprised if they were half placebos, because as I have said, the point of all of this shit is not to stop the spread of any virus. It is to get us to a point where we're okay with the status quo enough to shop and act like normal people and get rid of this this noose around the economy's neck, the service economy's neck, the retail economy's neck, otherwise known as the American consumer economy's fucking neck. I mean, my God, this, is bad. this has been a targeted a strike at the heart of the global capitalist system, which is dependent on American consumption. That's what we're for. And this is why I really think we might be on our way to falling backwards into a neoliberal UBI. Because we are, functionally, as an American economy, not here to make things. Yes, we do make things. We grow things. We manufacture things. But most of the growth of manufacture is done at the heart of empire, the way Marx assumed it would be, by the greatest degree of technological innovation or that technological intensity, the most, ca- uh, the most uh, mechanized process. Mechanized process. What the rest of us do is hang around and buy stuff from the rest of the world. Equalize the global supply so that we don't have a crisis of uh, overaccumulation, which is what caused the Great Depression, which is what has caused historically de- uh, economic crises. The US exists at the end of the global supply chain to catch all of the remainder to get all the leftovers off of all the plates at the, at the, uh, at the, um, at the all-you-can-eat restaurant. But we're still operating off of a, 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 a labor paradigm, which means we have to work for the money we get to consume. That's totally unnecessary. That is a social ritual at this point. It is not productive. Like all of the labor we're doing is ritualized because we cannot accept the reality that we have traded away our political subjectivity for unlimited consumption, and that means that the only way to square this and to keep the thing going is to just put a fucking funnel funnel of money into people to to allow them to consume not related but not uh, conditionally upon their income because the profits are going down. There is no room on the balance sheet for more money through uh, employment because these aren't real jobs. So there's no pressure to get a bigger labor share of income because there's no leverage because it's not real work. Now, of course that doesn't mean the real work doesn't get done, but the real work is domestic reproductive and infrastructural. It's the stuff that allows us to sit around and consume. That's real labor. And yeah, being a working in the retail sector, being the person to give the food and the stuff to people and running up the purchases that's real labor. But it is all around consumption, it is not around production. And yes, nursing and like keeping people alive, all of those things are infrastructural. But it is not productive. Productive economics occur elsewhere because, and this is the thing, the, 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 Capitalism was going to, is going to, in its closed system, is going to be pushed towards automation. But when you have a global, an unequal development of global capitalism, and you have huge numbers of people who are only recently been introduced into market relationships from fucking rural feudalism, then you can turn them into uh, incredibly cheap labor, which will not put pressure at the local level to industrialize. And that's what we have now. So in the places where, like in Europe, where uh, labor power was able to extract better conditions, uh, there's still industrial uh, e- economics happening. And uh, But here, there is, there is none. There is uh, no productive economy in the United States. The productive economy is elsewhere, either with other uh, with the people who got a better deal in Europe, or people working with their hands in uh, the cheap zones of the world economy, which have not been developed yet. Now, theoretically, over time, you would get a system where you had full equal development of capitalism as it spread around the world, but that requires uh, infinite. Inputs. It requires infinite resources. Infinite externalities. Shit. We don't have those. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, there is one way thing. There are two things we actually export as part of this system. But they are things to keep this thing going. They're the things that keep all these things, all these uh part all these polities, all these countries, all these. Social formations, this is what keeps them all on the team. This is what keeps that flow coming to the United States because it's not just there to consume. It's there to consume at the expense of other social orders because we, what do we export? Intellectual property and weapons. Those are the things that enforce a and, – and, and currency, the World Global Reserve Currency. Those things create the actual structures of control within the global economic order. But our social role within it, as individual Americans, is to consume. Not have any participation in the actual political structure, the political economic structure. It is to consume. We traded away our political subjectivity. And now we fake politics. Now we have a phony politics carrying out that we do a Potemkin politics to make up for it. Now, this is not on purpose. This is the problem that a lot of uh, your Americanist, like third-worldist types you know, people who just like get off on being the most radical and the most America hating get off, is they think that this is all some sort of cynical operation on behalf of the disgusting American labor aristocrat. No. This is a, a pro this is what happens when you are at a disadvantage like America's working class has been. Because we were where capitalism was able to solve temporarily the input question in a way European capitalism it couldn't. It left the American working class at a critical disadvantage relative to capital. And we look to Europe and we see the, the emergence of socialist parties and social revolution and we go, what did we do wrong? We didn't really do anything wrong. What happened is, is that the, the territory, the material base was different. The free real estate of the West allowed all uh, social conflicts to be resolved away from so, uh, the, a, a moment of truth. In Europe, those closed national uh, social orders, those, those, na- those competitive national bourgeois all competing against each other instead of cooperating, instead of subsuming their differences because it drives away from any kind of coordination – When unsynthesized into like a larger form of state authority, like the United States did to the Confederacy, it blows up into some sort of social crisis. You get communism, you get fascism, you get a real class conflict that gets subsumed into um, uh, politics. Here, all politics is drained away from conflict because there's always somebody to buy off at somebody else's expense – but that somebody else's expense can always be born because they got nobody else to turn to and the american and america's history as since the civil war has been the, and before that too has been the process slowly of bringing in more and more people into the uh, umbrella of like civic uh citizenship but while that's happening the uh, the the definition of citizenship is changing and being drained of its political um It's political content and political power. And that is the the, the horrible joke of the whole thing, is that when uh, blacks were finally brought into full political quality in the United States, it was at a point where the political uh, ground had shifted and political questions that could actually address the systemic horrors of racism were no longer accessible. And that's where we are now. And that's where we have to bring a new politics into being. But it doesn't change any of the questions in front of us. It should just change our approach to them. It should it should clear us of some illusions that we might hold that make it harder for us to see the moment clearly. Like the Bessemer thing. I think people got way more excited for that and put way more... Uh, folk emotional energy into that than it warranted given the real condition of labor in this country vis-a-vis a company like Amazon. And the reason for that is because people have certain expectations around politics around what they think uh, they can contribute. And we can contribute in the moment to challenging capitalism. And that leaves us To be more likely disappointed by something like Bessemer, disengaged, demoralized by it. And that's why remembering this stuff, remembering where we are in this structure, can make these things less uh, wounding and and allow us to uh, keep our powder dry for anything that might emerge in our lives. And I know that that isn't much. It's very thin gruel. But I really do think listening to this and hearing this message and kind of getting sort of those Buddhist cones in your head that bring you back always to the real conditions that we find ourselves in uh it's better than winding yourself up it's not better than other stuff to do but it's definitely better than winding yourself up and that does seem like the only other option because the arguments that are premised on we're gonna get somewhere from here by arguing about this i think are for are are false I mean, Amazon cheated, but that had to be been taken. If you didn't take that for granted, then you weren't ready for the campaign. You weren't ready for the reality and the likelihood of defeat. If you really thought, oh, I didn't know Amazon was going to cheat. They always cheat because it's always in their interest to cheat. You can fucking uh, break the law and inhibit a uh, a union vote. And then even if you're caught red-handed, the process is so long and involved. And then the punishment is so paltry that it will always be in your incentive to put the fucking stick in the spokes of the wheel every time. Because even if they, even if what happens is, is that the, uh, NLRB say, B says you have to have another election, you just do it again and you're buying time. And all you're ever doing in business is buying time anyway. So you get to just keep putting a goddamn stick in the spokes. There is a Smithfield, Smithfield ham, uh, the big plant there had a 16 year union drive. That's how long it took them to get a clean election where Smithfield didn't cheat or be able to overcome the cheating that they did. So if you're going, if you were surprised by the cheating or thought that that could have been avoided with any strategy, uh, then you were not ready for what was likely to happen. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Can we hijack state governments to change this? I kind of have the, of the opinion that, barring the UBI, barring, like, say we invent a, send something to make climate change a little better. We, break, we make some breakthroughs. Assuming, like, that the technological fix to the crisis occurs the way it has traditionally. You know, like how the Green Revolution in the 70s precluded the sort of mass starvation that people are worried about happening now with global warming. That was on the agenda in the 70s before the Green Revolution, which was a revolution in, uh, uh, among other things, uh, wheat uh, uh, genomes, where they created something called dwarf wheat that allowed for more wheat to be uh, processed per stalk, which greatly increased the amount of calories that could be produced per acre of land. So you need another thing like that, a second Green Revolution, and that buys us time from crisis. And then they do give us the UBI. Uh, if we have that, out I, I don't even know why I was talking about that. But I'm saying that's like the best case scenario. Oh, right. Uh, and, and politics continues, but in like a slightly improved material condition. Uh, I think that you're going to see a steady centripetal force between the state governments and the federal government, depending on who's in charge. Now, that's the thing. It's not like... The antebellum era when it was always the south pulling for secession after the north had pulled for secession uh, under the federalists by the way but that's because uh in the early republic the center of political gravity was in the south and that is why during the war of 1812 it was federalists in new england who threatened to secede from the union by the even the civil war the uh the economic power is in the north uh which meant that uh the and the center of gravity was in the north, so that means that the, the south had to pull away. Um, now we are having a situation where the poll, the the, the federal, the the uh, states' rights, secessionist pull is going to come from the uh, whatever the opposite of the party in the White House is. So under Biden, we're going to see big time, I think, uh, nullification style threats from hell. We saw it from South Carolina. I think. DeSantis in Florida has a real chance to emerge as, like, the 2024 candidate uh, by standing up, by embodying, like, the state-based resistance to the Biden federal government. Uh, Texas, of course, and always. But, like, say that Biden gets four years, loses re-election, which I think is possible, always at this point. We might be done with two-term presidents at, at this point, depending on how fast things accelerate. Um. And that means that, say, DeSantis wins or Trump comes back. During that presidency, you're going to see states' rights shit and secessionist shit emerge on among the big blue states like New York and California. They're going to try to defy federal edicts on things like immigration, on things like health care. And so there's going to be this constant ratchet of of sectional uh, conflict. And that means that there is always going to be work to do at the state level to build the capacity to participate no matter what those conditions might be. Certainly more so than the federal government. I would say at this point that the federal government is a lost cause. The federal government is beyond any conceivable political influence from any group of organized uh, voters that we could call the left. That would be my main argument about the federal government. You can... Say things are good or bad. you can say that the Biden stimulus is better than you expected. Uh, either uh, even though honestly I think the argument that this is a better stimulus than Obama's is simply predicated on the fact that it's a bigger crisis. It's we're further down the road from the crisis we never fixed in 2008. so of course we're gonna have a bigger fucking rescue package. We're deeper in the hole. That doesn't really mean anything. But whatever, we're not participating in it at the grassroots. It is a full spectacle. State and local races, I think, are different. Because the uh, the organizing capacity uh, in, at a state level and certainly at a local level is different relative to the amount of power that concentrates at that level. So I would say uh, yes. I mean, I honestly could see a situation where, like, California, if they embark on, like, a, a, if political crisis, like, does push that sort of Bernie coalition that won the primary into power, which is a possibility, that you see a continued brinksmanship, especially if there's a Republican presidency between California and the federal government. I do think that the whole thing will break up before. I don't think that the United States will collapse overnight. I think it will break up at some point. But that, I mean, I honestly don't think that that is much of a prediction, especially if you caveat that we're not talking in the near future. We're not even talking 50 years. But I do think once you get past 50, I don't think it's real reasonable to say uh, that it's not, that it's uh, not, that it's ridiculous, is all I can say. Not necessarily to happen, but I gotta say the odds the odds go up every year. So what do people think about the idea that Bernie would have been assassinated if he'd gotten the nomination? Because I have noticed that post Bernie, one of the big intellectual currents has been this uh, resurgence in interest in the Kennedy assassination and specifically uh, conviction that the Kennedy assassination was, in fact, the CIA operation. And I really do feel like, although there is plenty of interesting evidence for that, I mean, i got to say, Sean McCarthy on Twitter has posted some stuff that I had never heard about. Uh, And I was a very big CIA, uh, big JFK assassination head uh, in high school and college because I was cool. I mean, I I literally printed out the skeleton key to the gemstone file and would read it in class. That's how cool I was. And I had never heard some of the shit that he's got. Some of the, specifically the people who were killed, uh, just holy fuck. But I do think that whatever you want to argue about the merits of that, and I think that they're fully arguable, I'd say that I am a, I am a JFK agnostic on every question of it. Uh, and I really do feel like because I can't know more, there's nothing I'm going to learn that is going to change that. It's only about whether I decide to, like, put enough focus on trying to convince myself of one or another. It really is about like, okay, which one of these should I just stare at until I believe in it? Cause that is really where I feel like I'm at. And I don't feel like there's any point to me doing that. I don't feel like there's any advantage to finding that. Now other people, they don't have to look so hard. They can look for a second and be like, no, that's it. I can't do it. I, it would require me to focus more on it. I think than would be worthwhile because I really do feel like we're, The world we're living in can be explained under any one of those uh, frameworks. Any one of the JFK assassination frameworks can be made sense of materially with where we are now. But I do think that the emphasis on the assassination as a government operation is partially to give yourself the reassurance that we never really had a chance. And the thing is, I think that's true. I think the Bernie campaign, in retrospect, never really had a chance. Now, the question is, what was it that gave it not a chance? Was it... The atomization of the social order? Was it the transla- transformation of the American from a worker to a consumer? Was that it? Or was it the result of the deep state, the para government structure that is beyond government uh, uh, oversight and popular understanding, to t- shaping and determining uh, the levels of our political uh, horizon? And the thing is, both of those can be explained through Marxist terms. Both of them accord to a materialist understanding of history. Because you've got the one that uh, emphasizes suburbanization uh, and, and racial segregation uh, and media saturation uh, and the changes in conditions of work. You can emphasize that and get to there from here. Or you can emphasize the way that uh Within a competitive capitalist economic structure, uh, functional bourgeois democratic organs require the abstracting away from the individuals to a secondary sense source of power. Because uh, individual capitalist firms can only operate out of self-interest, they cannot coordinate effectively without abstracting away something to a government. That's uh, That's how the bourgeois dictatorship operates. And it is directed through democratic means in order to maintain its legitimacy. Like we have elections so that the people don't revolt, and you don't need to spend money keeping them working. They'll work on their own because they think they voted for it. They think that they are participating in these questions, and that keeps them on board. That is manufacturing consent, and it's way cheaper to do that by having a democracy than by having to use the technology of control. I think that's changing now. I think we're getting to a point where technology has, uh, is advancing to the point where we can just get rid of the democracy even formally because we will have a sufficiently technologized uh, consent mechanism. But before that, you really needed – if you wanted to be efficient, if you wanted to be an efficient capitalist system, you needed democracy because it's cheaper. But that means that there has to be a non-political. Uh, there has to be a power that transcends uh, uh, democratic accountability because you're not really a democracy. That's what the Constitution exists to do. That's what institutions like the presidency, the Supreme Court, the Fed exist to do: to abstract power and mystify it, and have it be contained beyond accountability. And the once you get to the post-war era, and we go from headquartering a uh, a state bourgeois dictatorship to presiding over a world capitalist empire that required a sophistication of operation and maneuverability and articulation of power that could never be democratically accountable. By definition could not be democratically accountable. And so therefore had to be abstracted away beyond uh, control. And that means creating a, uh, a brain in the deep state, in the permanent intelligence, intelligence state, which would act at every point to prevent the democratic uh, role play, the carnival, from breaking containment. That makes sense, too. Both of those things are true. Which one of them is the determiner of events? I don't know. And, and, and I don't think that my analysis of the moment depends on either one. I will be reading JFK and the Unspeakable for a project. I know that that now is the one everyone points to. I mean, before that, it was the Devil's Chessboard. And I have to say that while that's a great book, and I very much enjoy all the stuff about Dulles's career as one of the most evil demons of the 20th century. It is interesting that as the book gets closer to the Kennedy assassination, Dulles as a character disappears from the pages and the narrative. It really does become a a echo chamber of you know testimony and 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 uh, an intimation. He never really makes a case that uh, that Dulles was the mind of the Kennedy assassination beyond saying that he is the one figure who was in power that Kennedy dispossessed of power. Like whatever you want to say about Kennedy and like Vietnam, did he really care about, uh, ending the the war there? Like, was he really having this dove turn that a lot of people now think he was? And I think there's more evidence than I used to think that that might be the case. uh, One way or the other, Dulles is still literally, is still hot-fired. Dulles still got fired. Kennedy still said, I'm going to smash the intelligence the CIA into a million pieces. And with those two things being true, it really does point to Dulles in defense of the intelligence community's prerogative more than specific goals in Vietnam or Cuba uh, to be the motivation for the assassination. And I'd say that is very persuasive. But again, I don't know. I don't know enough and I can't focus on it enough to make an appointment. I, my main thing is making an, an assent. Because I'm trying to ground my shit now in history and specifically how history can tell us how contingency uh, and materiality can uh, hit each other. How contingency and uh, consequence hit each other. Because we really do live in a world made by our material reality – Made by our material relations of life and our modes of production, but that are lived through a culture, through a superstructure that shapes us, uh, literally at a, at a, at the level of our consciousness. And so that means that the interplay between these things is not some simplistic arrow that goes from base to superstructure. It is a fully uh, unified thing. It, it it is it is as non dualistic as the universe the base and superstructure. And so that's why with a thing like the Kennedy assassination, I would much rather talk around it and talk about the contingencies and the consequential moments that shaped the world we're in and and how they would have been reflected in these arguments than trying to argue whether one specific thing happened or not. Because that, to me, kind of misses the point. Which is that we're here either way, so what is the constant? One thing we can say is that I think contingency is much greater than we would assume if we do operate from materialist principles, but that in retrospect, when you look at it as like a diagram of human activity, it becomes inexorable. It looks on paper like it couldn't have been any other way. I do, I do think it's interesting the people who want like, the files opened and who want the CIA to give up what they have or think that there's some investigation that can come to a final conclusion. I would say that the smarter of them that I know would probably admit that if it all came out tomorrow, CIA killed Kennedy, it wouldn't matter. I mean, we had an an Afghanistan Pentagon Papers come out last year that no one cared about. It said, oh yeah, longest war in American history that's still going on, all lies the whole way. Nobody cares because nobody's fighting it. Because it's a bunch of uh, poor kids uh, and fucking uh, ROTC freaks presiding over a war that isn't meant to be won. So it doesn't matter. We all know. Everybody knows, as Leonard Cohen said, that the dice are loaded. Everybody knows that the good guys lost. But they would might argue, but, you know, knowing is worth it. And I can see that. But I also kind of wonder, isn't it just demoralizing? Wouldn't it just be demoralizing? Wouldn't it be fucking demoralizing to have that happen? To just have it all unveiled and then for no one to... The mystery, even the mystery, like that the little thing in your gut of like the spark, that, that Jim Garrison moment from the end of the movie he goes, don't forget you're dying king. Open the files. Don't you want that and not have it just totally fucking extinguished just so that you can know? But, I, w- I mean, obviously I would like to know. Who am I kidding? Open the files, for the love of God. Uh, somebody says, uh, am I more of a Pete Bonderant, a Kemper Boyd, or a Ward Little? I think you could guess. I think, I mean, I'm pretty tall, but I'm definitely not a Pete. And I'm obviously not Kemper Boyd. Come on. I am. I did a tweet once where I said, take the BuzzFeed uh, American tabloid test. Are you a Pete Ward, or a Kemper? And then I said, spoiler alert, if you're on Twitter, you're a fucking Ward. I do think, though, that... You know how they say 70% of Americans think that the Kennedy assassination was uh, a conspiracy? I think that that's true regardless of where you are. Like I think that runs that that number is is distributed everywhere in society. So I feel like even if Kennedy was killed by Oswald, all those problems the intelligence community was having solved themselves in the form of this wacko shooting the president, uh, or another one I like trying to kill Connolly and missing, which is one theory, or him taking a shot missing and then the dumbass Secret Service agent behind. Kennedy's car standing up too fast with an AR-15 and shooting him in the head, which is another theory. If all that was true, uh, nobody knows for sure. Most people don't aren't convinced by the explanation. There's big questions hanging over it. So I think like people in government are presidents and all those guys, and not even forget the presidents, uh, people in Congress, in the Senate, governors they mostly probably think that there was an assassination that was carried out by a conspiracy. And what that does is it lets them know what they're in for if they fuck with anybody. They know they could get got. Or, you know, could. Because maybe they're out there. Maybe they got Kennedy. And if they could, then then maybe they could get me. And it's just one more little bit of of rebar in the, the ideological structures that make up the political mind, and that and that discipline political action. I don't. Somebody says, "How long until we let corporations vote?" I don't think we'll have to. I mean, they already effectively vote. They, their votes matter in a way that the, the our votes don't. But the actual voting is the whole point of corporate power is that it's outside of the voting structure it doesn't require participation at the level of the ballot so they'll never need to vote it'll just all fall fall apart it'll all drain off politics the voting rights all that ritual stuff will be drained away it's not going to be injected into it's not going to be validated it's going to be undermined how long until cities get autonomous zones uh, corporations get autonomous zones within cities where they can make their own laws. They already do that. Dan Gilbert and and uh, Quicken Loans in Detroit, they've turned it into OCP. They have it's RoboCop in Detroit. The downtown has been bought out by Dan Gilbert's company. They run it as a corporate campus, and it has private security. That's the center of the city. That's literally RoboCop. He's Dick Jones. And there is now an effort in Nevada to incorporate corporate cities in the middle of nowhere that are going to be able to write their own laws and have their own tax structures. It's inevitable. Company towns. I mean, people call it neo-feudalism, but it's not really. It is just more capitalism. It's capitalism undefeated. It's capitalism unchallenged. It's capitalism at the state of decline, away from, uh, away from like state capacity and towards total, like, uh, technological independence. But the social structure is neo feudal in that you've replaced the liberal order of, of, uh, of rights to contract and individual citizenship with bilateral contractual relationships where all human relationships are, uh, are mutual obligations. Instead of a a or an era where you're bargaining as an individual, because that is the point where technology exists to not require your consent. You don't. We don't need you to fucking consent to this. So we don't have any reason to humor your ass with individual rights and market choices. I don't understand how someone calls me a DSA and Democrat defender. I guess there is now a thing where if you are not explicitly endorsing the Republicans, that makes you a Democrat. And I kind of get what that they mean because like if we're talking about the the spectacleized political politics of identity and there's two sides, you can only really break with the one dominant form by endorsing the other one. I understand that and there is logic to it if you insist on maintaining investment in this identity formation. But I do not uh agree. Cuz then you're just a Republican. And how the hell here's the one thing I really don't get. And I I'm so, apparently this is not the person the person wasn't talking about me, but I've heard this before. Uh that's why I responded to it. Um what I do not get is if you see the way the Capitol dominates the Democratic Party and, and, and defeats any attempt to make it an articulation or a, uh, a vehicle for class uh, power, what would make you think that the Republicans would not have similar structures? I guess the argument is, is well, well, Democrats use wokeness. But yeah, that Republicans use anti-wokeness. In the exact same way. it's just that because you're in the milieu, either because you live in a city or you're spending on time online with left wingers and and, and and the mainstream culture, you're seeing them through this like glass. over there in the, in the parts of the country that are dominated by Republican uh, local capital, they use anti-wokeness to, make, to, make, to destroy any kind of class politics in the exact same way. There is no way for it to articulate itself out of this structure. Both parties are irredeemable. The thing is, though, you still might have to support Democrats when they run for office sometimes at the local level. This is what I'm talking about. How it's all about where you can actually Focus, energy, and power. It might be a ballot line. It might be a different party. But the determiner is not either of those. It's what the power is at the base that can affect the uh, the vote and to shape the agenda. As a participant, as just a passive voter, you don't have any obligation to vote for anybody. You can jam your vote up your ass. Because individual votes don't mean anything morally. I fully believe that. Like the main problem with DSA has been the same problem DSA has had since its explosion. It's a middle class movement of uh, of computer people, and when I say middle class, I mean people who are identifying themselves as consumers and whose lived experience of labor is not what uh, is not organized and coherent and does not structure their relationship to politics, even though they might think it does. What they're actually responding to is an idea of class they picked up in a book. And that's not everybody, but it's the majority. And that's not, and the other thing is, is there's no alternative to that. Because the only people who are politically engaged in this country are people who have been propagandized sufficiently to think politics matters. And for them to think that, they had to have got it somewhere. And the way they get it is largely through the ritual acculturation of politics in college. And so you go to college to learn about exploitation and class. You come out either deciding the class is a thing and that you need to organize around it, or that it isn't and you need to organize against it, and then you apply those politics to your life. But they are not lived. It's not a lived experience for Americans. Which is why it's very funny to hear people talk about lived experience and how we have to honor lived experience. If we honor lived experience, we will never be able to organize socialism because class is not a lived experience we live class in our in our relationships to capital but we process it through our understanding of ourselves as consumer identities which include things like race and gender and politics and so you come out of college thinking that voting and caring who's in charge And is a meaningful activity, and that you are going to meaningfully impact politics by engaging in it. If you have only experienced the blunt end of the stick of life in this country, you are less, and you have not been told through a process of cultural um, assimilation that this is true. You're gonna fucking uh, say fuck all this. And m- mainly by not being political at all. But if things get worse and worse, and politics becomes more strenuously part of culture and harder to avoid, and more more entertaining, the way it has, a lot of those people are going to enter politics, and the only framework they're going to have is the stupid uh, asshole pussy framework, and that is a bad. That's bad news for everybody. But it wouldn't be much better news if it was the other way around, because neither one of them. Can articulate a positive vision and a vision to challenge, which would have to be a vision that challenges capitalism. I'm not i critici- am not really criticizing the, the, the DSA for being a middle-class movement or like a college-educated movement, a, a non-work, like not specifically working-class movement, as in people who like live class. I'm not criticizing them for that. It's inevitable, as I said. What I'm saying is is that has been the biggest hurdle to them being effective. And it's something that needs to be addressed one way or the other. But I think it needs to be recognized as the fundamental problem before you can move forward because it doesn't seem to me that a lot of people think that's the issue. And if you don't think that's the issue, you end up talking yourself into some pretty wacky circles to try to figure out what the issue is. And that makes it harder for you to address things and makes you have to deal with people who don't know... What's the fucking terrain looks like and aren't addressing problems where they need to be addressed. Uh, the Lincoln assassination conspiracy theories, that, there's no conspiracy theory there because it was a conspiracy. I mean, I think some people forget that, but uh, Booth was part of a ring of guys who operated out of a boarding house owned by Mary Surratt, who uh, planned on the night of Lincoln's assassination to kill... Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, I wish they'd gotten him, and uh, Seward and Grant in a a decapitation uh, strike. But what is even less well-known is that before that, they had a plan to kidnap Lincoln that they coordinated with and were funded by uh, the Confederate government. It was was essentially a hit put out by the, the Confederate government. And a number of the conspirators were hanged afterwards. Um, What happened with the rest of the assassinations is is that the guy who was supposed to kill Andrew Johnson chickened out that fucking asshole. Uh, I think, I wish, if if you're going to kill Lincoln, kill fucking Johnson too, for the love of Christ. Uh, And then uh, the, the funniest incident was that someone went to kill William Seward and he was in bed with a neck brace on because he'd been in a carriage accident. And when he went to stab him, he kept hitting the neck brace and then he ran away. So not only was it a conspiracy, it very well could have been a conspiracy of a fucking federal Confederate government. I wish they hadn't shot Booth and they'd found that out because that really might have increased the likelihood of a more putative government settlement with the leadership of the Confederacy, at least, which was would have been necessary as a, just a minimal starting point to making Reconstruction work. There is other stuff, though, about... Uh, there's, a, there's a theory that... And I don't really see a lot of evidence for this, that uh, uh, William Stanton, the war secretary, uh, was secretly behind the Lincoln assassination. And that he cut... Like, uh, one of the pieces of evidence is that the, the telegraph lines were cut right after the assassination and were not uh, operative for hours. Much like how, the, as they say in JFK, the phone lines in Washington, D.C. went down uh, on the 22nd of no- November. And, like, Booth's diary has some missing pages or something. I don't think it's terribly persuasive. Most countries do, or I think most countries do change their, they change their form of government and change the Constitution. Uh, we definitely should have, more than we did. Give me Benjamin Butler as president after the Lincoln assassination, and maybe we got we got something. Oh my god, the hype train is close. I remember this happened one other time, the hype train. We're one person away from the hype train. Still not sure what it is, but it's it's exciting. Because I remember there's like a big thing that goes down. It's like when it's like a, a like doing a slot machine or something. There's, see, there's a little train there. Look it up. There's little chain. So, yeah, we're one away. It's a scam train? How is it a scam? Don't get scammed, folks. I don't want you to get scammed. I just like the little train guy. Oh, so it's a, it's a way to trick people into giving me money. Hmm. Benjamin Wade becoming president after Johnson uh, being impeached would have been good. It's a little late. Johnson had already had a chance to do a lot of damage by then. But also... Because, remember, because of the insane idiocy of the way that uh, Congress operated uh, constitutionally at that time, Congress didn't come back in uh, session after Johnson becomes president for months. So he was able to just go hog wild all by it was loathsome. But it would have been unlikely because there was a big uh, consensus in the Democrat-Republican party. Hype trade! that they didn't want Benjamin Wade to be president because Benjamin Wade was ambitious. He would probably have run for office and gotten it uh, in the the next election. Uh, And he was a soft money radical. He was not one of these uh, gold standard dickheads. And once again, our only hope was soft money. Apparently, uh, Milton Friedman has the same analysis of the Civil War about how it's really about uh, gold versus uh, fiat. Only he thinks that's why the Confederates uh, were the good guys. I disagree. He's literally arguing for a uh, a capitalist abstraction away from politics in the form of uh, in the form of a gold standard which is arbitrary and enforced by state power. That's the thing. A lot of those guys don't even know that. Like, I would argue that a guy like fucking Rand Paul, probably, Ron Paul, probably really thinks all that shit about how gold is, is different. How gold isn't like other currency. Gold isn't like just the government. The Gold can't be, no, don't tell me. Gold, the icky gross state, is why gold has value? No, no, no. He's too committed ideologically to uh, to... Possibly say no to that. But I think that at the top levels, most of these motherfuckers know that shit's not true. Especially in the finance sector. They know that that's not real. So this thing really is just like a fake little video game to get you to pay. Like, oh, you want to see the number go up? And then you press the button to see the number go up? Is this how Japanese television works? And yet people do it anyway. They know this, and yet they do it anyway. Fascinating. The Constitution can never be uh, rejected at the grassroots on the right anyway, because the Constitution is the is the basis for hierarchy. The Constitution justifies hierarchy. The, 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 the premise of constitutional government is that there is a subject class that cannot be a participant in politics. And so you can't get rid of it because then you've gotten rid of all the levels of mystification away from the reality that the state is what we make it. And if the state is what we make it, then power cannot – why would we concentrate power unnecessarily? Why would we concentrate wealth? Why would we concentrate life possibilities? Why would we concentrate uh, beauty and and grace and, and repose? Why would we concentrate that at the top? Woo, we got a high train. This train, I claim, this is, this, this ideology. Yeah, the only thing I remember from my anti-drug rap was, they said I was weak, they said I should drink tea. But I said, sorry dudes, I like my wits about me. So there they stood, something like, befuddled and stunned, while I walked off real sleek and smug. Pretty sure that's it. No, no. See, that's the thing. Uh, uh, the, the drink tea thing, some people think, oh, are you saying that's like, oh, you should drink tea? No. They're making fun of me for not doing drugs. So they're like, oh, you should drink tea instead. It's like they said I was weak. They said I should drink tea. Like, oh, look at me. No drugs for me. I'll be drinking tea. Pinky extended. But then I say, sorry, dudes. I like my wits about me. Yeah, I was a backpack rapper, basically. I never had a roller backpack. I will say that. Somebody asked for Spanish Civil War book recommendations. If you like the military part of it, uh, Anthony Beevor has a good book. Uh, the social history is actually really interesting in an uh, oral, bi- uh, oral history called Blood of Spain, which is a lot of interviews with people on both sides all the way through the hierarchy, like you know, Carlist Requetes and anarchists and trade unionists, communists, uh, peasants. The description of, uh, of uh, collectivization uh, in, um, in like CNT Spain is really interesting, talking about how they went about collectivizing agriculture in the South. And then, of course, you got Homage to Catalonia by Orwell. That's a good one. The Spanish Cockpit. Carlos
0: Jr., that's good. All right, I think it's uh, time to saddle up and ride off, off into the distance. Yeehaw! Getting a saddle up and ride.
1: Gonna dosey do
0: down the dusty trail. Howdy, partners.